0: I'm gonna invite Jeff to come on up. I'm gonna get you set up with a music stand and then you've got about 25 minutes to tell us about war. Y'all send your questions in, sound good? Give him a warm round of applause here.
1: Thanks for inviting me, this is gonna be a lot of fun. Um, So I'm Jeff Green, I'm a philosopher at HBU. I also do some administrative work here and there and I'm dean of the graduate school. So if you're looking for a good graduate school, um, feel free to come talk to me or Talk to Dr. Harder over there, who would love to tell you about our theology programs, I'm sure. Um, so, I'm going to talk about social media first. Um, doom scrolling is a part of my life I try to avoid. You've probably heard of doom scrolling before. If you haven't, it'll make a lot of sense. If you've ever gotten on Twitter and you just start whenever something bad's going on, maybe it's an election or maybe it's a war right, all the way around the world, and you're curious about news about it, so you just start scrolling on Twitter, reading about all the doom that's happening. Or you might be doom scrolling about the pandemic, right, and you've been reading terrible news about that and it just keeps coming up in your mind and you want to read a lot about it. And I mention this because talk about war can be hard. It's, um, It's a terrible thing. It's an immediate thing for many people around the world and it's an angst-inducing thing. And even though we're far from war right now here in America, we can feel that effects, we see it on our screens, we see it on the web, and we can doom scroll. And I want to encourage you not to doom scroll and not to try to control um, the nations of the world, but it's tempting to. And so I was thinking about how to frame sort of war theologically before we talked about the nitty-gritty of um, just war theory. And I was thinking about Psalm 2. So did anyone go to a graduation recently? Sarah, we got some graduations. You probably got invited to them, and they always play the same music at all of them. And it's interesting because we have music to celebrate various things, and we always play the same music. So like at the inauguration, we have various music to celebrate the president, and we're like, hey, there's the president. And then eventually, the queen will die. I mean, we don't know when, she's really lasted a long time. But Charles will become king one day, even if it's just for a little bit, and they'll play all the same music, you know, that they got over there, and God saved the king, and so on. And so the ancient Israelites did the same thing. They had music set up for special occasions, and I don't have any idea how it sounded. It probably sounded really cool, and we don't have the sheet music, but we do have the lyrics, right? So in Psalm 2, you get the lyrics for, hey, we got a new king, and this is one of the songs we're going to sing when we get our new king. It's the reign of the Lord's anointed. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And I think about this psalm when I think about the nations raging across the land. Um, the Israelites were in a rough neighborhood. They actually still are, interestingly enough. Um, you read in the Old Testament, they're always having to fight for their land. And it's probably always wasn't these big fixed battles. It's a lot more like a bunch of Scottish highland clans coming down from the mountains and raiding each other's cattle and things like this. But occasionally they had these really big battles too. And then even after they're established, you get a lot of battles. And it's a rough place. They were always fighting for their sovereignty and independence. And like I said, it's still a rough neighborhood today. The nations raged around them. And so the nations are raging. They're setting council against Israel's king. And Israel has the psalm of trusting God for protection and sovereignty over all the political maneuvers, over all the nonsense that's going around in the land. And here's the kicker for us. Later on in the New Testament, we actually get this psalm get used. And it gets used not in the context of the King of Israel politically necessarily, but the King of Israel in a much bigger sense when it talks about Christ and about our trust in Him. And so when I think about this psalm, I think about not only the raging of the nations that Israel went through when they had it, but also the fact that we too can take refuge in him, and God, and to trust the Son and God's promises to establish his kingdom throughout the land. And that's important because we can't control the wars around us. We can't control what's going on in your Twitter feed. Um, You can block a bunch of stuff and we can be in denial, but the world's just full of terrible things oftentimes, and so when we talk about hard topics like this, it's good to know that we have that refuge and that war as a contest of power and politics is not beyond God. Indeed, God ultimately controls it and has victory over it. Um, So Let's get into the nitty-gritty a little bit and talk about just war theory. Um, A lot of what I'm going to do today, if you're interested more, um, it's both based on, and I would encourage you to go to these sources. Um, Michael Walzer wrote a book called Just and Unjust War, and he wrote this in 1977. It was towards the end, um, I think actually the end, it was right after the end of Vietnam and we had withdrawn our troops from it. And there's a lot of angst in America about Vietnam. A lot of, huh, World War II seemed like a good war, we're glad we fought it. We're not really sure just what happened, but it sure seemed bad. How do we tell the difference? And Michael Walzer revived this idea about just war theory that honestly had kind of laid dormant for a while. He wrote a book called Just and Unjust Wars to help us try to figure out what the difference is. And now I believe it's like in its fifth or sixth edition. So if you want to know what philosophers are thinking about just war theory, you need to go to the Walzer first. And then after that, people have critiqued them, of course, and talked about it. But Michael Walzer's *Just and Unjust Wars* is, is what I'd encourage you to start with. And if you're looking for a little bit more of a contemporary take, there's a book by Brian Oren called *Morality of War*, and that was from 2006, so it's post-9/11 and deals with some things that we see now in our environment that um, Walzer's book didn't deal with as much. So let's talk about some distinctions. I want to talk about first the difference between what's legal, what's expedient and what's moral. These are three different concepts, and um, I'll need your participation here. Um, let's try to think of an action that's legal, but one shouldn't do it. It's not moral. you have any ideas? What's something that would be perfectly legal, you're not going to get fined or go to jail, but man, that's, you really ought not to do that. That's a crummy thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, you shouldn't give people the finger, right? You shouldn't, I mean, but thankfully you don't get fined for that in a normal context. We aren't gonna throw you in the jail. What else? Cheat on your wife. Yeah, cheat on your wife. You shouldn't do that. It used to be illegal I think maybe at one point. Maybe. But I don't even know. We had all sorts of weird rules back in the day but now you wouldn't. Leave your shopping cart or the parking Yeah, hotel. you shouldn't like put your shopping cart in a bad place. Like be a responsible self-governing citizen and return your shopping cart to the appropriate trolley area and you know, collect it, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's gross. And, and and gross things can also be immoral. Oh, God cares about beauty. But they're not necessarily gonna be illegal. And vice versa, you can also come up with some too. Are there some moral things that you think that's the right thing to do, but it's against the law. And maybe you have to think historically, but I think you could probably come up with some cases. Those people did the right thing even though it's against the law. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes and some um, jurisdictions even make this illegal in some places. Harry Tubman. What? Harry Tubman. Yeah, Harriet Tubman. And all sorts of things regarding race relations in America, we see consistent acts of civil disobedience that are illegal, but also were the right thing to do. Um, good. Good. Those are good distinctions. What about the difference between expediency and legality and morality? So, when I think about expediency, I think about what's practical. What's the best thing to accomplish some sort of goal you have, right? So can you think of something that would be like, oh, that's like the best thing to do in terms of practicality, but eh, it's not moral or maybe even legal. Can you think of anything like that? You might cheat on your taxes. I don't think you ought to do that. Maybe is that what you said? Yeah. But hopefully you didn't cheat on your taxes. But notice your chances of getting audited um, at least if you're like me, I don't make millions of dollars, so the IRS probably isn't so interested on that. If I failed to report a little income here or there, who would know? And it's, I think that's probably immoral. I'm not giving the Caesar what's due, Caesar. Um, but it's also illegal, but it might be sort of best. Yeah. What? Speeding, right? Speeding. Um, probably definitely illegal, and we could talk about, yeah, I, I'm just going to concede that it's immoral. Um, I, ha- I have a longer story about speeding, but um, let's say you shouldn't, at least reckless speeding. <laughs> let's say you shouldn't speed. Um, and why do I make all these distinctions? Because sometimes when we ask ourselves, for example, what should we do if China were to invade Taiwan, we might come up with a lot of different answers, and one way to make sure that we're distinguishing them all on the same page about what we're talking about is to make sure we're making these distinctions here. Right? Because it might be, for example, that we ought to defend Taiwan in terms of America's interest. But just because it's in our interest as a nation doesn't mean it's moral or even legal. And also, just because something's legal or moral doesn't mean it's going to be in our interest. And these things, things are going to sometimes come apart. And so we have to—I dis- mean, ideally, they're all happening on the same page. I mean, life would be so simple. If it turns out what was legal was always what was moral, which was always what is expedient. But it's not like that often, um, and especially not like that in the realm of international politics. So we need to distinguish those things. Primarily today we're going to be talking about the, hey, what's moral question. And I say that because I'm not a political scientist. What's in the best interest of Americans strategically, you probably need to ask the generals that. And if you want to know what's legal, we need an international lawyer here. And we could talk about international law. Is there even something called international law? That's kind of weird, like who enforces it? Um, so we can have lots of questions about the nature of law, lots of questions about what's expedient. Um, as a philosopher, I guess my domain of expertise, so to speak, is really about, well, what's moral? Right? What does justice demand of us in these cases? Or what does it allow? Another distinction that we're going to make is between um, something called juice ad bellum, juice in bello, and juice post bellum. And that's just Latin for, hey, should we start a war? What's going on in the war? And what happens after the war? And we make these distinctions as just war theorists because we want to honor the intuition that sometimes you can be fighting for the wrong side but still act morally or immorally in the war. And sometimes you can be fighting for the right side but you can still do really terrible things. For example, this is going to be a controversial example, but it's one I would argue for if you push me on it later. I think that America was justified, and it was a just war to defend ourselves against the Japanese after Pearl Harbor. I think that it was immoral, though, and even in that context, to drop the atomic bombs given the huge numbers of people that were innocents that were killed in them, deliberately so. That would be a case where those things would separate, and we'd have... Juice ad bellum, yeah, we're good to go, we're good to defend ourselves, but uh, maybe we shouldn't drop bombs that kill hundreds of thousands of innocents. Vice versa, you can imagine cases where someone could be on the wrong side of a war, right? Imagine a soldier who's sent off to invade another country, but we want to distinguish their actions, which are honorable, they don't shoot civilians, they try to practice the rules of war, they try to treat people fairly. They try not to cause harm more than they have to. And those soldiers that are invading another country and do terrible things and massacre civilians, etc., We want to be able to make the distinction there between those things. Here's another controversial example. There are some generals, I think, who fought for the South, even though I think the South was not waging a just war, who acted honorably. And we should say, oh, they performed honorably during the course of their actions, even if the cause they were fighting for was terrible. In the same way, right? If, you're on my, if you think like I do about the Civil War, you might say, hey, the Union, they were right for what they did, but maybe Sherman shouldn't have burned down all of Georgia in the process. Um, so we can criticize Sherman's actions even if we agree about the overall thing. So that's why we make a distinction between those two things. More popular recently has been, what do you do after the war? That's the ju- um, juice postbellum, And again, you can imagine different ways this would go. Right At the end of World War I, for example, sort of famously, this always gets cited, the peace treaty was onerous, apparently. It was unjust that the allies imposed upon the central powers, even if they were on the right side of the war. And so you want to figure out what's justice in all these different cases, and these things can be separated out. Um, So let's start with juice ad bellum a little bit. Juice ad bellum is the question of, hey, should we go to war? And it is rooted in the concept of self-defense. So there's something called the domestic analogy that we use in just war theory. If someone were to come up and hit you or hit the person you're with and threaten their lives, um, you would think, oh, you have the right to fight back. Similarly we can expand this analogy, it's why it's called the domestic analogy to nations. So for example, Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait, takes it over, the rest of the nations say, hey, Saddam, you shouldn't invade Kuwait. Basically an, an act of defense of Kuwait. Um, we then fought Iraq along with a number of other allies and kicked Saddam out of um, Kuwait. And interestingly enough, kind of stopped there. The no-fly zone complicates things a little bit. But it was a limited war and an effort of defense. So that's normally how we think about just wars. There's someone attacking, they're the bad guy, there's someone defending, they're the good guy. It does get a little bit more complicated, though. There's some what we might call modifications. This is what Walter calls them. We have preemption. So imagine you know someone's about to do something terrible to you. You see your neighbor... And they're getting a bunch of dynamite together. You're like, hey neighbor, what do you do with the dynamite? You're gonna go, like, you know, build a tunnel or something? They're like, oh no, we're gonna use it to destroy you. And you're like, whoa, bad neighbor. But like, they haven't done anything yet. They're just gathering a bunch of dynamite. They start threatening you with terrible things, right? You see them like getting armor ready to go and they get their friends together and they're a nasty bunch and they get their dynamite together. And then you have a chance. All right, before they throw all the dynamite over into your lawn to stop them, I think it's fair to say that you're acting in self-defense, right? They might not have literally blown up your house yet, but to wait for them to blow up your house seems a little late to then to defend your house. Similarly, a lot of just-worth war theorists want to say preemption, not prevention, which is a different category, but preemption is an okay thing. Here's an example. Um, tensions were rising in the Middle East, as they tend to do, and you know we were talking about Israel um, earlier. So Israel had been established as a state. They had fought a war, and they were living life. and tensions were rising. And Egypt and several other Arab countries were surrounding them and threatening them. And Egypt cut off access at this particular strait. And with, they, Israel felt like they were about to be invaded. And Israel' is a very small country. Um, the distance, um, especially back then, between, say its borders and the sea, were not much so they can be carved up pretty quickly, and they knew that if they gave it just a little bit of time, they'd be in trouble. So they preempted, famously, Egypt, um, actually fired the first shots, destroyed the Egyptian um, air force on its airfields, established air superiority and took over the Sinai and caused all sorts of interesting repercussions um, to this day. But when historians look back at what's called the Six-Day War, many of them will argue that Israel was just. Israel was about to be invaded they preempted, so sometimes this self-defense concept gets a little complicated. Um, we also talk sometimes about um, freedom, is what I'll call it. Basically the rights of people who have gotten a shared life together to govern themselves. And we'll talk about that later, I think, partially because that's what we're seeing actually right now, I think, arguably in the Ukraine, is we're seeing a breakup of sort of historical Russian imperialism. And the question is, are the Ukrainians a separate people? Right? Are they little Russia? right, as the Russians often claim, right, they're just little Russians, right? Are they a similar but different people group, or are they actually part of Russia? And Russia invading Ukraine is kind of like us invading Arizona. Um, So what's going on there? And we should have that discussion, but oftentimes freedom, the ability for one group of people to run themselves, is a reason to be just, and you can see that again as sort of a version of self-defense. And then finally, crimes that, what we might say, shock the moral conscience. Um, An example of that might be Kosovo. If you remember, um, Kosovo might be a combination of this and freedom, but NATO famously intervened on behalf of, um, I guess, Kosovars, I don't know if I have that name right, on behalf of the Kosovars in one of the many civil wars that racked um, the former state of Yugoslavia. And we did it largely because of the accused genocide of the Serbian troops. And it was a sort of shock to the moral conscious, and so we intervened in that case. Those are all controversial examples. The simple case is one country invades another, and the invading country is bad, the defending country's good, but international politics and the way we live together often isn't so simple, and that's why we have the modifications. Um, let me jump a little bit to Juice and Bellow, and then I want to cover a couple topics, and I know you guys will have some questions. Juice and Bellow is about how we wage war. And there's one thing I want you to think of when you think about how you should wage war, and that's the principle of discrimination. And you might think, well, discrimination's not good. Um, Discrimination in war is very good. And what you want to do is you want to discriminate between civilians and the fighters. And almost everything about how to fight a war is based on those two things. Not putting civilians in undue danger and only fighting the fighters. And... That's a difficult thing, and that's a hard thing, but that's the basis of a lot of juice and bellow, is the principle of discrimination, All right? And this is why, for example, I argued that the atomic bombs were evils, and same with firebombing cities, is because they don't discriminate, All right? They don't make appropriate discrimination. The reason you shouldn't kill civilians, even though you're killing other people later on in the day, is because the civilians aren't trying to shoot you, All right? It's one thing to kill soldiers. On the other side, it's another thing to kill civilians. There is um, also something about proportionality that matters too. Proportionality is a complex concept. I'm not sure it holds water at the end of the day. But there is a sense of only do as much war as you should. Um, The reason I think that's difficult is that morally speaking, I think that's really hard to figure out. Like how far you should go and why killing some but not that many people is okay, et cetera. But we can talk more about it if you want. Um, And then finally, a couple other items. There's two other main competitors to just war theory. Um, One of them's called realism. Um, Realism is just the belief that all this talk about morality is a sham, right? And um, some of you who read Greek history, you actually get some speeches. So when the Athenians were going off and they were coming in front of cities, there's a famous speech recorded by, um, I think, Herodotus, if I remember right, and the speech goes something like this, hey, people in the city, you know we're going to burn you down anyway. Doesn't might make right. Just accept it, accept our sovereignty, and move on. And at the heart of that speech is that might makes right idea, that all this talk about morality in war is just a cover for, really, power. And so the realists say, look at America's actions over the years. America, like every other country, wages war when it's in its interest, not just because... It's moral to do so. Think back to like the Mexican-American War, a lot of other wars. America has often waged war in its interest, so to speak. Another framework for thinking about it is pacifism. And pacifism is complicated. There's a lot of different versions of it. But we'll just, um, I'll just consider the version really quick for the idea that, hey, all war is bad. We shouldn't do it. And you should take pacifism seriously. I think everybody should go through a point of life where they're a pacifist. And the reason I say that is that I think it's an appropriate part of the realization of how terrible war is for everybody involved. And you should have a pause inside your heart and go, huh, I'm not sure this is really the way things are supposed to be. I think this is especially true when you read through the word and you see such a powerful emphasis on loving your neighbor right? When you see them, the nations come. And interesting, right? You get a whole mob coming for Christ in the garden, representing all different facets of life. You get the laborer, you get the Romans, you get the Jews, right? You get the world. You get the intellectuals, you get the soldiers, and they come for Christ. And Peter says, not on my watch. Sometimes Peter's bold, sometimes he's not. Pulls out his sword, cuts a guy's ears off, And Christ isn't like, yeah, go Peter, right? He's like, hey, we're not doing that today. He puts the ear back on somehow. We look at examples of how Christ lived his life in the midst of injustice. And the answer is one of nonviolence. And so I think you should be taking seriously pacifism. And it has a rich Christian tradition. There's whole denominations um, that have basically been founded on their pacifist traditions inside the American history. Ultimately, I think while Scripture is complicated on this, I think it does give the power of violence, um, sort of just violence to the state, and I think Christians can be a part of the state, and so I think I don't think it makes sense for us as Christians to sort of um, abstain from or pass on responsibility to be part of the state in the enforcement of justice, and so I think pacifism ultimately doesn't work, but I think it should be taken seriously. So those were um, some different things to think about, kind of give you the lay of the land when it comes to just war theory. I think probably what you want to do is ask questions because every time we talk about just war theory, we've all been doom scrolling, even though we shouldn't. And you have lots of questions about what's going on, lots of questions about what's going on in Ukraine and everything else. And so let's get to it.
0: Thank you. That was so good. Every time we have a professor come talk, I'm like, I want to take their class. Um, okay, so wow, and you were on time and everything. It's fantastic. So what we're going to do is take a 10-minute break. You guys can get some more food, some more beer. You can use the restroom. You can talk to me about dispensationalism. But when we come back, we're going to have our panel answering questions. So keep texting them in, though I have a lot right now. See you back here in 8, 9, 10 minutes. Uh, I'm Meredith Mills I'm
2: pastor of Westminster and I am so I'm not actually a pacifist but I'm going to rep team pacifist tonight because I feel like they they so I went to I went to um, seminary at Duke, Duke Divinity School, which is home of Stanley Hauerwas, and um, Richard Hayes was my new pre- professor so it was like in the water like you came in and they just douse you with pacifism um, and so I feel like I feel like they need a good rep tonight so that's me <laughs> you're gonna.
3: I'm uh, Mac Gervais, and I'm the lead pastor of City West Church, and um, I guess I am in the just war category of of things. Pro
2: war. Pro Pro war, she said. pro
3: every single war. Whatever it is, I'm pro.
4: (laughs) I am Adam Harger. I'm a professor of Old Testament Hebrew Bible at... Houston Baptist University, and I'm somewhere between absolute pacifism and warmongering.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, like, it's a wide range. I'm Jeff Crean, and yeah, I guess I'm probably in a more traditional just war theory camp.
0: Awesome. I didn't realize what you meant when you said repping. I should have known. We thought we were going to have a pacifist up here tonight, uh, but I'm glad you'll be repping for that team. Yeah. I already have a ton of questions in the bank and I see that you're texting more in, so that's great. If your question doesn't get asked and we have enough, who knows, we might do a podcast on it. Um, Oh, and while I'm thinking about it, only because I'm seeing this box of stuff and being reminded, when we're done, uh, I would love to have any help tearing down if you want to, but also, once we move these chairs, we've got some fun props here if you wanna stand in front of this step and repeat, that's what this is called, and get your picture taken. We have some famous theologians you can take your picture with, a hat that's a beer, all kinds of exciting things. Okay, back to war. Here we go. First question is this: Does Jesus' instruction to turn the other cheek have any bearing on how Christians ought to think about war? Does the turn the other cheek passage mean anything when it comes to war? Mac, you have to share.
3: Sorry. Wow. I thought you were like pointing at me like you no, got to fight in the
2: war. No, you don't get the microphone. War. Mm-hmm. Yes, it does. Okay, so. Um, So here's what I think needs to be said tonight. There is a lot of pacifism in the New Testament. There is a whole, maybe pacifism is the wrong word because the New Testament wasn't thinking about war, but the New Testament does directly address the question of violence. We all know that there's a whole lot of violence in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there is direct teaching in which Jesus overturns things that were said in the Old Testament. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. So Matthew 5, he goes up to the mountain, just like Moses, delivering a law, except for this is a new law, and not an abrogation of the old law, but a fulfillment of the law. This is the law's highest culmination, where Jesus, the Son of God, is going to give this new way of living to his people. And it has all of those texts that you love and you also hate because they seem impossible to follow. But just because they seem impossible to follow doesn't mean that Jesus didn't actually mean it when he said it. So he takes the the lex talionis of Deuteronomy 19, and instead of "eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, he says, do not resist the evildoer. Do not resist the evildoer. I for an uh, he says, when someone slaps you, turn the other cheek, which that has people, ugh, people keep trying to make that into something else. Like they take this historical reading that it didn't actually mean that, but then he gives other historical, um, if someone Takes your cloak, give him also your thing. If someone f- forces you to walk a mile, walk another mile. You have to do a significant rereading to say that Jesus is saying anything other than respond to someone's violence with peace. Respond to someone's violence with peace. And the thing is, it, once you take through that reading, then in the rest of Matthew, you get Jesus doing that same thing, as was noted earlier. So Jesus has this experience, where he is assaulted by violence. And there are people who are going to defend this unjust victim, I mean, this just victim from unjust violence. And Jesus takes the sword out of his hand and says, those who take up the sword will die by the sword. Not those who live by the sword. Those who take up the sword will die by the sword. And then he is the embodiment of the ethic that he puts forth in Matthew 5. He goes to death. He is shamed. He was put to death. God says this one was right, right? God raises him from the dead, glorifies him, and when he goes out in the Great Commission, he says, go, therefore, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you includes all of those teachings on the Sermon on the Mount. And if this were not apparent in the Gospels, it is an ethic that is repeated in the rest of the New Testament. So you have uh, Romans 12, uh, where he says, do not repay evil for evil. Um, Over and over again, you have ethics throughout the epistles. Every writer in the New Testament how do we respond to the aggressor? We respond with peace. We respond with forgiveness. We respond with nonviolence. Um, and you have to remember, guys, this was also being written at a time, some of the books were being written at a time when Christians were being drawn to the lions. And so if there was ever a time to say, pull your gun on the soldier coming to arrest you, this would have been it. And yet it wasn't. And yet the New Testament still provides us a, presents with us an ethic of responding to violence with nonviolence. And so I would say that the only reason that we don't look at the New Testament and overwhelmingly see a vote toward pacifism is that we are are drawing other things. We're using experience, we're using reason, we're using other practicalities to try to temper that. But the overwhelming voice of the New Testament, um, the overwhelming voice of many, many voices of the New Testament is that, like it or not, Jesus meant what he said when he said, when people aggress, to you, aggress towards you, respond with love, do not
0: resist the evildoer. I see Adam chomping. chomping. I didn't mean to chomp.
4: Uh, no, not because I disagree with it necessarily. Um, I would say, yes, absolutely, it would have a bearing on how we think about this. Um, I would think, uh, and while I do agree, I would say the turn the other cheek can't just be equated with don't commit any violence at all, simply because I think as a as a Christian, for instance, violence against me, right, I have maybe a responsibility to turn the other cheek, but Jesus can't have meant that, Adam, if you're walking along and you see a person being assaulted, that you should turn the other cheek and not engage, you know, because you're just not allowed to commit violence. Now, obviously, I would try to reduce that violence and things like that, but I'm not sure I would say that. It's just, you cannot simply participate in any Ah. violence under any context.
2: Why can't he have meant that? I mean, so I understand you're saying, like, don't do nothing, but you said, like, so violence is justifiable in defense of an innocent third party?
4: I mean, I would think so, yeah. Uh, Of course, we we do it with restraint and and other things, we're not, you don't have to go straight to killing somebody, Right. um, but I would think if turning the other cheek means just let violence happen to you, I'm not sure that Jesus meant let violence happen to someone else.
0: It's a war right here. I love it. I'm going to put another question out because I want to get to as many as we can. Has the U.S. had a foreign, quote, just war? If so, how do we determine who is the country who is moral? For example, if the Arabs think they are defending their country from U.S. imperialism, who or what determines who is right? Do you want me to read it again? Sure. Okay. This is buying time to think about what their answer will be. Okay. Has the U.S. had a foreign, just war? If so, how do we determine who is the country who is moral? For example, if the Arabs think they are defending their country from U.S. imperialism, who or what determines who is right?
4: Sorry, I know I just talked, but I'll make it short. That's fine. Because I'm actually more on the pacifist side. I would, I would say that there actually has never been a war, uh, sorry, there's never been an unjust war fought because nobody ever engages in a war unjustly. In other words, every, every single person who starts, every person, every single nation that starts a war believes they're justified. Uh, so that's actually an argument against just war is to say it's, it's a matter of perspective because it, it's essentially what this question is asking, right? Um, you know, I'm sure the Nazis believed that they were justified. They didn't go into it saying, oh, we're absolutely wrong in this, but we're going to go ahead and fight it.
1: Yeah. You might get booed again.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I
0: know. Um, so I'm not say, I'm saying... I'm well, not saying uh, I mean, overall. I, yeah, well, two TOTs ago, Adam said that puppies don't go to heaven. <laughs> and so, yeah... <laughs> That's what he's referring yes. to when he says you might get booed again. <laughs> well, I mean, I, mean I, I think that that question,
3: though, is asking... There are two different things being asked there, which okay. is, you know, um, on the one hand... Uh, re- sorry, read it back, the, the first Oh, part. it's gone. Oh, it's gone. Sorry, All right, once I
0: ask, I delete. I have a system.
3: No, that's fine. I, I'll try to recreate it the best way I can. Like but who
0: says what's right? But Right. It, yes. So one of them
3: is, has the U.S. ever engaged in a just war? And then the second part goes to a very specific complicated uh, uh, conflict mm-hmm. and, it, and is using that to, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if they're trying to go one way to the other, or the other way to the, to, you know, but uh, has the U.S. engaged in a just war? Um, I'm not sure how serious we are in that question. Um, uh, if you're a pacifist, then I guess the automatic answer before we even get into the minutiae of particular conflicts would be no. Um, and if you're on the other side, then, yeah, we can have a conversation about uh, what is right and wrong. I, I do think, both in this question and even in the last question, uh, I think there comes to this understanding, even when we ask that question, of what is the role of government? Not just from a man's perspective, but biblically. Like, what is the overall understanding in both the Old and New Testament of, the, of what. A government's role is, and I think how we answer that question is going to influence then what we think about war. Um, and if, and I don't think that that is simply just an Old Testament thing. I actually, I think there's a lot of this understanding even in the New Testament um, from gospel writers um, uh, and even Jesus himself. Uh, but has the U.S. engaged in a just war? I think the fact that we ask that question means that we do think, um, even contrary to what Adam would say about Nazis, <laughs> that uh, mess it with you, buddy. But that we are able because of some higher. Uh, divine law able to make judgments about what Mm -hmm. nations do here and now. The question presupposes that there is justice that Mm -hmm. can be known, that can be understood, um, and then also that we can use that, uh, what God has given us from himself, to determine the justice of actions, which is why, obviously, when we get to this conversation, it's like almost everybody is anti-Nazi, and so it's really easy to come back in and go like, yeah, well, they might have thought they were right, but all of us definitively will go, no, that was wrong. Um, and that's an quote-unquote easy one because it's not the question of the day that we're having to deal with. We are going back and looking at these past things. So the question then becomes, uh, do we have a solid uh, biblical understanding of what justice is to understand what's happening in our day today? Not just... Going back 95 years, or 100 years, or 70 years, or 200 years, and going, yeah, well, you know, uh, slavery was wrong, so I'm glad that you know they fought this. But you know, modern-day pacifism would never have somebody fight that war, you know, Um, and not just from an American side. I'm the son of Haitian immigrants. Had we not fought for our independence against the French, well, then we would still be slaves. And so, you know, like I, I, I think that it's really easy to go back and ask that question. Um, if we're not easy, but we're not doing justice, if we're not actually asking the greater question of what is justice, mm-hmm. what is the biblical understanding that God has for what government's uh, role responsibilities are, and then how does that play itself out into the daily lives of people?
1: Yeah, I think there's actually a lot of cases. I mean, look, the U.S. history is mixed, but from the Union side in the Civil War to the response to 9-11 and the top line of the Taliban and the um, elimination of Al-Qaeda to battles in Asia when it comes to um, defending the South Koreans and their way of life against invasion. I think there's been all sorts of times when America's been on the side of justice. And there's all sorts of times when America's done um, evil things as well. And so it just turns out that nations do good and bad, and the people in the nations do good and bad. It's, um, and this is where I think that even though there's perspectives, there are leaders, and leaders make good and bad decisions that we can judge. And so I think we can look to states, people, and say, huh, that president did something wrong in ordering X.
0: Let's talk about a particular war. I got two questions. One is kind of long, so I'm only going to read it once. And then the other one is shorter. They're about the same thing. First one says, After recently studying First Peter and about being subject to governing authorities, I've been asking myself, was the American Revolution wrong? I mean, obviously, we aren't gonna go back and be like, England, can you rule over us again? But the settlers, colonists, came here for religious freedom and they got it before they revolted against English rule. That war had way more to do with taxation, trade, and things like that, things that aren't inherently moral. And then somebody else asked, We'll be celebrating the 4th of July soon when the founders did violence over the price of tea. Can Christians legitimately celebrate the spirit of Independence Day?
1: Yeah, so this is a good question. Um, I think you need to ask yourself is, do you think the Americans had a way of life separate from the part of the empire they were a part of? Right, so, you know, Texans like to joke about seceding, And, um, you know, we go to the Alamo, and we cheer on Texas, and we're like, oh, we're Texans. Um, But I don't think there's any doubt that Texas finds itself in America intertwined into the American way of life. The language we use, the laws we follow, the elections we participate in, um, the sports teams we root for, these are all part of the bonds that bind us together, not as a country in the midst of an imperial system being ruled from another type of person, Right or another group of people, but we are self-governing as a nation. So I think if Texas were to try to leave, and you know we had a crazy you know, group of folks out in the panhandle and they um, carve out a little part of their country, I think the authorities would be right to say, "Hey, you're breaking the laws. You shouldn't see." Um, were the colonists, that is, I think, the question. And I think it's a borderline case. I mean, on the one hand, the colonists didn't have equal representation within inside the British Empire. And so there really is something to be said for were they treated with the respect that and the dignity that people deserve to be self-governing. On the other hand, we did break away from the fairest, most generous, and probably the most ethical empire in the world at the time. And so we weren't really in that bad of shape compared to a lot of others. And so I think we should look a little bit with skepticism on the American Revolution for what it's worth.
2: So one of the underlying assumptions is that the only way to affect social change is through war, right? So the only and it happens at a personal level, it happens at a societal level, like the only way that we're going to change this is to overthrow, you know, is is to start a war, and that's untrue. And 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 I think. I think Jesus says that's untrue, right? I think Jesus had every opportunity. Like, there aren't many times that Methodists get to say, because the Bible says so. So I'm just like, y'all, seriously, because the Bible says so. Like, Jesus had the chance to be overthrown, right? Have, have legions of angels come to his defense. Jesus had the chance for people to rise up and put a crown on him. Jesus had the chance to effect change through violence. And he said no. He said, this is not how you're gonna do it. Um, And not just this is not how I'm gonna do it, this is not how you should do it. And I think we keep trying to get away from that, not because it's not in the New Testament, but because we don't like it and we don't know how to do it. And we think the only way to effect real social change to free the slaves, to do the good things, to what are, what's the Isaiah, right? To become the Isaiah, the chain breaker, we think the only way to do that is through violence because that's what we know how to do. And I think when we do that, we are missing the entire voice of the New Testament that's telling us that's not how God wants Christians to work in this age. That there is a way to, yeah, I mean, you're welcome to come back and be, I'm not saying, I am not saying all of those things were wrong, all of those, all those causes were wrong. What I am saying is there's always another way to do it. There's always another way to do it.
3: And I I think a lot of that is true and good. um, But it is a very reductive way of reading even parts of the New Testament. I mean, you quoted Romans 8 before. Romans 13, Paul says that God gave the government the sword for a reason. Oh,
0: Romans versus Romans. Why
3: Why? Why even inject the sword into it if it was never something that was meant to be used and something that God gave governments uh, as a tool? It's not the only tool in the belt, and I agree with that. It's not the only tool in the belt, but it is a tool in the belt that God has ordained and given governments. Now, you know, we can we can apply that into specific scenarios, but to say that God gave governments the sword for no reason, it, it, it's, that in and of itself is, is making the New Testament say something I, I don't think it's trying to say.
2: Yeah, I don't think the New Testament was primarily written to governments. Right. So I think the New Testament was primarily written to the people of God, who at that point probably never thought that they were going to have a government. Right. Right. And so I think a lot of this just becomes practical of what happens when like a small group of people all of a sudden get in charge. Um, But I don't think that that negates the overwhelming ethic of the New Testament.
4: And we should probably distinguish here between the nations and the church, because we could read that Romans passage and say God gave the sword to the nations and they're the ones who are to wage wars but you as Christians should not,
2: you know? I mean, we could take this whole, so if we, if we took nations out of it and we take this down to the personal level, like are you allowed to carry a gun in self-defense? Right? It's the same question at a personal level.
0: Raise your hand if you it's have the one same, right now, <laughs>
2: It's the same question at a personal level. And so if we're gonna take the governments out of it entirely, then do we get a different answer when we bring it down to the personal level?
3: Yeah, but I don't, I mean, we could do that, but I, I think that misses the point because to, to an extent, there are responsibilities that we have as people, as citizens, there are responsibilities that we have um, within the scope of, of the church, and then there's responsibles, re- responsibilities within just the social construct of government and citizen. And all of those things, I think, are covered across the New Testament. Um, you know, like, I, I don't think that uh, when I see somebody, you know, parking for too long, uh, that it's my role and responsibility or jurisdiction to write them a ticket. Like, hey, you went over too far on this meter. Here's a ticket. And, you know, X, Y, and Z. No, there are rules, responsibilities that government has uh, that God has given them in order to, cre- to have a society uh, that functions well. And so, uh, we could say, like, well, if we just reduce it down to uh, to a personal level, yeah, but the New Testament writers didn't simply talk about they actually did talk about governments and why they're addressing even in the first century the need to uh, how do you function as a citizen and even you know like Romans is a complicated book, but I think it 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 gives us a glimpse of the levels that exist within uh the the believer uh, there is that which is you know like the church there is They talk about, you know, on the back end, Romans 13, about governments and their responsibility. But, you know, you would think that in this view of just being the church and that's all that there is as God's people, that that would erode the concept of national identity. And yet, at the same time, one, stepping out of Romans, the nations is talked about throughout all of the, the New Testament. And so there is this idea you, you can't talk about the nations if there isn't like identifying with, the na- with your nation. Like it implies that there are distinctions between people that are important. And those things don't just disappear in a, in a love and harmony kind of way. No, those, those, those differences exist and are celebrated uh, under the banner of Christ. That also being said, Paul wrestles with what it is to know about what God is doing in redeeming people but also like looking at his countrymen Like, I am also Jewish, and I love my people. And so I I think that we're doing ourselves a little bit of a disservice when we just simply say that all that the New Testament writers, Jesus, uh, quoting Jesus and their uh, understanding of what God was showing them was just, it's all uh, on an individual level. There aren't layers that make up a society, uh, and there aren't uh, um, uh, uh, a tension. By the way, I think a good tension for believers about wrestling between what it is to be a citizen, what it is to be a believer, uh, and what it is to whatever your, your, your trade or whatever you do in your daily life, how the gospel influences those things. But, but all of those things are all together. Sorry, I was wrapping
0: up. I was okay. finding my last sentence. Okay. Sorry. Anybody else have any thoughts on the American Revolution before I move us along?
1: I want to say something about the 4th of July.
0: You say what? Celebrate? I want to say it? something about the He's Fourth of yes. July. actually answer the question. Um, <laughs> there
1: are good things about America. I think you should celebrate them. I think you should hang out with your family. Um, the one danger I would warn you against is thinking that America is the only good place or the only good thing or misunderstanding your identity as an American citizen over being a Christian. Um, Really clearly, I think the kingdom of God is across nations, right? It's for the barbarians and the citizens. It's for the other and for you and for those that are close. That doesn't mean we extinguish or get rid of those connections that bind us together. Um, But the Canadians, they need love too, and they need Jesus too. And so remember them (laughs) as well. And I say that because there's a danger of nationalism and all these things that is unbiblical that runs through this.
2: I'm going to be super quick, but on the other half of it. So it's funny, I've had my feet in so many different waters. I get schizophrenia just from like switching different groups. And there is a group that is very nationalist and America is God's country. And there is a group that is America is the spawn of Satan. And you should never yeah. like they see a for, like see a flag and they're like, oh, my gosh, get it away from me. It burns. Yeah. Um, it burns. And so I, I just want to say that, like, honestly, I, I think Jesus has got to be somewhere in the middle, because while you do not want to create the idolatry of America, I do think there is a point. So my my, th- my point about pacifism, seeing from the New Testament, that it is not that God does not want to create, make, the, bring this new creation. It's that He's got nonviolent ways of doing it. And if we are not actively involved in the positive creating, bringing about of of good things and partnering with the good things that are already here in America. Um, If we are only just this constantly negative voice, then I don't think we're gonna do any good. Um, And so I do think that there's a happy medium somewhere in the middle.
0: So when we leave, we're all gonna sing the Star Spangled Banner, (laughs) put our hands on our hearts. No, okay, I got two questions that are similar. I'm gonna ask them both. They have to do with Old Testament violence and such. I wanna be careful that in our answers, we don't go back to answering the question of just violence in the Old Testament, but how does it apply to how we think about war today? Okay, because we did do a TOT on that, and I was the guest speaker, and I think we covered it. (laughs) Okay. No, no, no. Okay, so here's our two questions. One says, does God's mind change on violence between the Old and New Testament? Why does Jesus change the rules? Why does God use the Israel nation for violence against the land of Canaan? And the other question says, why would God send people to fight in wars in the Old Testament and stop in the New Testament?
2: Yeah, I, I think, so I'm (laughs) <laughs> this is, this is most obviously like directed at the the pacifists, and the the response has to be. There are things in the New Testament that Jesus directly overturns, right? So there are themes, everything is one story. Everything is a continuity. Jesus claims to be the fulfillment of the law, not overturning it. And yet there are themes within the law that get developed in the New Testament and change. So because Jesus was crucified as the Passover lamb, we no longer need to do animal sacrifices. And if we come back and someone says like, oh, but did God change his mind? Like no, that reaches its fulfillment, its culmination. We no longer need that. Um, there are themes that gets developed and violence seems to be one of them because it is directly addressed by jesus there it was a part of the story for the time but when jesus directly addresses it at the sermon of the mount he seems to say that the the new the people of god the new creation that is happening is going to have uh, playing r- rules that look different than what you heard back in Deuteronomy 19. It's the law plus one, right? So this is the fulfillment of the law. So not just no, not murder, no anger, not just no adultery, no divorce. Like we're gonna take it to the next level, and that next level does include turning of in the other cheek and all of that other stuff. Um, and so I, I would say that you you would have to read that um, the the story progresses and comes to a different level with Jesus as he overtly says himself.
0: Surely you want to say something on this. I mean, Jeff knew he handed yeah. you the mic, right? This is, like, cool. his thing, y'all.
4: Yeah, so, I mean, violence, of course, is, is a tricky thing to define. It's one of those things, it's like pornography. You can't, what was the famous thing? Like, I can't oh, define it, yeah, but I know I it when know. I see it.
0: Yeah,
4: yeah, um, cool. And so, violence is very much like that. And I think when we talk about this subject, we think strictly of bodily violence. So, like, the... You know, in the in the Old Testament, they were committing war and bodily violence against people. You know, but that's that's a, its own separate thing from other forms of violence. Um, you know, domination, oppression, things like that. Um, and well, first, I, w- I do want to say we we talk as if there is no bodily violence in the New Testament or in what God is doing and God has changed. And what's what's fascinating is that's it's actually not true. Uh, if you look at the like the eschaton, right? So if you take the what con- is
0: the eschaton sorry
4: the the end times when right? god
2: kills everyone oh god. no Stop. no but seriously
4: no no seriously if you take the doctrine of the resurrection seriously then when god judges people and condiz- that is bodily violence god is killing people in the eschaton so there is a sense in which it's not that like god ordered them and they did bodily violence but god doesn't do it or like god no longer does it uh, and this is what I would borrow from, uh, but I, uh, to support what Meredith is saying, kind of in, in a previous answer, when you look at the pattern in the Old Testament, uh, you know, God is, is calling the people to be His people, and yes, He does is call them to go to war, and that is very tricky, uh, and we don't have time to justify that tonight. Uh, but you do see this pattern in which, when Israel sins, God calls another nation, to come against them as, and it, it describes them as God's sword, right? He, he brings them against them in judgment. But here's what's fascinating. It's not because the other nations were righteous. Um, in fact, those nations still get judged for their evil. So they're, they're a tool that God uses, but they get judged for it. And what we see happen in the New Testament is this moves eschatologically, right? It, it moves into the cosmic realm where uh, God is taking this on. And so this is where I would say, like, this this is where my, like, more pacifist side is coming out. When I read Romans and it says that God has given the sword to the nations, what he's saying there is that in the same way that God gave the sword to Assyria and to Babylon and to others to to bring about judgment, to to do God's working in the world but then judge them, when we read, you know, Revelation and other texts, it says that God is going to come and judge them, right? In the, in the new creation, it's not like there's going to be lots of nations. There's not going to be freedom of religion. There's not going to be freedom of things like, like you know, it is God is coming in and he is conquering creation. Uh, and so but where we fit into this is that when he says he gives the sword to the nation, he's saying that that is the nation's realm and they will be judged for that. But you as Christians, right, you are part of a new kingdom. So you don't participate in what they do. They carry the sword, and they'll be judged for that, but you do not.
2: You want to respond to that?
3: I'm <laughs> oh, Sure. I, yeah, I mean, I... I yes, I, in principle, I disagree. I think that, um, for one, you know the spirit of Romans 13, uh, when Paul says that in 2 Peter, 1 Peter, whenever Peter's addressing it, it is is talking about how we are to conduct ourselves. So it's not like a metaphorical sword. Um, It's a legitimate, because of the way that God has structured the world to work, this is how you should conduct yourself. And then furthermore, I do agree that it does move up, but I I almost feel like it should take you the other way. Because if complete passivism was God's heart, then why does he use so much war language talking about his, his second coming, return, judgment, sword coming out of his mouth with an army, all these kinds of things, if the analogy was meant to be weak and not literal in some understanding? It, it, th- Sorry, not- can I just say real quick? I'm
4: not saying... Sure. Uh, so borrowing a phrase from a friend, I'm a pacifist because Jesus is not. Um, and so it's, okay. it's the idea that God can wage war because God does so righteously. Hmm. Right. But that doesn't mean that just because God can do it, that we can do it.
3: But so, I think the mo- yeah, And but, that's where
4: but, I think he's handing it over to the nations, right? The nations will use the sword, and they'll be judged for
3: that. So God is using a nation to use the sword to enact his justice. But when they are doing it, it is also wrong and unjust. He does it like ten times in the Bible. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm just gonna disagree with the <laughs> fundamental, fundamental
0: point, but that's okay. okay. Sorry, Meredith. Yes. Mayor Bear, you got anything? Okay. Y'all, some of these things you're texting me in are very funny. You're keeping me amused up here. I'll just say that. Okay. Um, I've got two that are not the same thing, but they're, s- they're similar, and so I'm gonna ask them both, because I'm trying to squeeze as much as we can into one night. One person says this. When a people cry out for help in the event another country invades, do we have an obligation to act on the invaded country's behalf when we believe the invaders are in the wrong? The other person says, most wars today seem to be proxy wars where countries fight each other by sending money and arms to third-world countries who fight each other. Is it more wrong to keep these countries in perpetual turmoil than waging a hot war between I didn't know that term. <laughs> hot war between nuclear capable countries? So they're both talking about what we are doing on behalf of other countries. So that's why I looped them together, even though they're not quite the same yeah, question. Sure, sure, sure. Do you need to hear either again? Yeah. So I let me um, I guess not.
1: change the framework a little bit and move from just war theory to what we might call virtue ethics in Aristotle, right? And Aristotle's like, go. be wise, right? Be wise, find the median between two extremes. And I think this is why earlier when I mentioned Talking less about nations and more about individuals is important, right? So what's the obligation, for example, for our policymakers in response to Ukraine? And there's a lot of details that go into that, and we want them to be wise right, in their response to evil. One response to evil is sort of cowardly, look the other way, don't engage, right? And that seems to be wrong. Another thing is to overreact to every evil in a way that's not prudential as well. Um, they have obligations to you that they're balancing now, right? So one way to go to extreme is to not care at all about what's best for the American citizens, right? Wage unlimited war and we'll just see what happens to Americans because people in another country need us. Or another thing is to concern yourself only with Americans and say, well, my duties are completely to America, We don't care anything else about other people. And so I think when it comes to those questions that actually, I don't think just war theory is really good at it. It's more of a deontological framework. It's gonna provide sort of a yes or no, like permissible, impermissible. When it comes to how much should you engage in war with another, when another nuclear power is involved, like with Ukraine? I think the answer is carefully, (laughs) right? And I actually, I'm pretty proud of most of our policymakers that they've thought about that really hard. Um, and that they're trying to thread a really narrow path. I'm, that's, I mixed my metaphors there. They're walking a narrow path, they're threading a needle, um, they're trying to balance the two extremes there. Okay. That's, fair. That's, a good answer. that's
0: a good answer. Okay. Everyone thinks it's a good answer. We're moving on. This person says How can we determine when we are forcing our cultural beliefs on other nations? For example, we would probably agree that to Christianize a nation would be wrong. But how is making a country democratic any different than trying to Christianize them? Well, I mean... Into the mic, sir.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a great point. And I think that's where we have to uh, differentiate um, the, the concept of waging of war versus what happens when the war is over. I think uh, uh, even things like democracy, Whether you think that's good or bad, uh, uh, you know, there are certain cultural, historical uh, presuppositions that people have that make these kinds of things work. And uh, in lots of ways, when you don't have those same understandings, Uh, You end up falling into trouble and those things don't stick and work when you try to take something that people don't have the the Foundational worldview and then take this and move it over here and are confused as to why that doesn't work But I don't think that the issue of being necessarily pro um, a particular like intervening in a conflict means that you are pro All of the actions that people took after that conflict is over to help rebuild a society
0: Okay I'm not used to one person answering and no one being like, "Ah, I don't know about that." You know? Okay, here we go. Israel is told by God not to have a standing or permanent army. Should we? I mean, y'all knew this question was y'all, coming because I put it in the email. Are not the
2: new Israel? Can Thank we just get that you. Yes. over? Yes. Come Thank on, you. July 27th. I was like, Do I say it? it? You
0: say it? No. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> we are not Israel. Uh, that's that's all I had to say.
3: Ditto.
1: No, I'll say democracy isn't all that bad. Um, I was thinking about this last question. It took me a while for my brain to catch up. People being made in the image of God gives everybody a really inherent um, dignity and worth. We should be careful at dismissing that too quickly because oftentimes the alternatives to democracy actually are pretty terrible for a lot of people. Autocracy comes with a great deal of internal violence to countries, and so... How we go about promoting dignity and worth of the individual in other states is complicated, prone to cultural misunderstanding and imperialism and all that jazz. Um, But there is at the root of it something really valuable, which is we want people to be treated well and for the image of God in them to be honored, right? And we notice again and again through history that democracy, while not awesome all the time, Usually is better than the alternative. So in leaving Afghanistan, which again distinguished between prudential legal and moral um, Maybe made sense for a variety of reasons for American policy. The women of Afghanistan are now treated more poorly in the image of God in them is now defamed more Mm. because of how we left them because of the government that's now in control and so I think that sometimes in the midst of cultural sensitivity, we actually ignore that there is something valuable about the Western tradition of individual rights. And I think it's rooted in this Christian sense of um, image of God, which is also why I think we feel displaced about it, because as society secularizes, Hmm. we lose the ability to articulate why we should care about it even, right? And Mm -hmm. I don't know if humanism can get us there. I really actually think there's sort of a back way here to, oh wait, people matter because people matter to God. And then we can start that conversation. Go ahead.
2: No, it's more of a
3: question. Can you further define what you mean by democracy? Because I think we use that term broadly, um, and I think we need to clarify what we mean when we say that.
1: So I'm just meaning broadly systems of government where individuals... have direct ways to influence power, often through elections, but other things. There's a variety of ways in which democracies work. Um, Everywhere from like really crazy direct democracies that are very populist, we have referendums all the time, um, to more federalist systems and indirect democracies and so on and so forth. I mean, our nation was both a democracy when it started and really weird if you look at how it got set up in the original constitution. And so I think there's a wide range of things that fall under that.
3: Right, well, I mean, just, Because I don't, even if we're talking about America strictly, like I don't don't think the founding fathers believed in pure democracy. Um, You know, that's just not the kind of government that they were trying to set up. And I do think that it's important for us, even when we're talking about this, to make sure that we are separating um, the general understanding of um, government's responsibility to its people versus the cultural ways in which that can be expressed in a way that honors God. And I don't think that that is like an America-specific thing. That is, uh, uh, it didn't just come about a couple hundred years ago. No, this, this was able to be done prior to a democratic republic existing.
0: Did you want to say something, Meredith? Oh, I thought I heard a deep sigh. Okay, try to read them, you know. Okay, um, here's the next question. Can a Christian take an oath to serve the state? Can Christians serve in any role in the military? or should acceptable roles be restricted? And I think I would add on to this, if you have any thoughts about the draft, feel free to throw that out as well. Can Christians take an oath to serve the state? Can Christians serve in any role in the military, or should acceptable roles be restricted?
2: Why is everyone looking at me? Um, (laughs) You were holding the mic closer to your
0: (laughs) mouth and they were like, like, good, because they didn't have anything ready.
2: Someone else want to talk first? So, so here's where. Okay, I'm I'm repping Team Pacifist, but I'm I'm not ac, I'm not actually pacifist, and so I'm I'm arguing here between like the team I'm repping and my internal thoughts. Um, <laughs> but I think even so, I've had pacifist friends that were military chaplains. Um, they, I, I I'm trying to think. I think the pacifist response would be. Um, you can take an oath to serve and the the best way to do that is to if you can if you cannot do it in active combat right if you cannot be the person who's actually shooting people which i realize like you get into it a weird, so you're going to make other people go do your dirty work for you like that's where like that doesn't make sense to me but i've had um I've had pacifist friends who served as military chaplains, who, who who took the role of either being a medic or a chaplain because they wanted to be able to support, um, but they did not feel that a Christian should, in good conscience, ever serve in an active military role. And so, I, I do think that would be the pacifist uh, answer.
4: I don't want to answer it, but I think this is my question. So it was. <laughs> I guess I don't. I don't really have a yes or a no here, I do think we need to take things like oaths more seriously uh, because I don't think we do very well. Um, and I, I think as Christians, while it can be good to serve the state, to pledge an oath to them, you, you could potentially have conflicting authorities, right? I think there's a degree to which as a Christian you're, you're committing yourself to serving Christ first and Christ alone. And if the state happens to do something that aligns with what Christ is doing, great, like participate in it. But to make an oath to serve the state means that you are saying, I will do what they tell me, even if it goes against my Christian conscience. Uh, Otherwise, you have to end up breaking an oath. Now, if you don't take oaths seriously, then sure, go for it. Um, But, you know, there's lots of oaths we take in life, marriage, things like that, where you know, we just...
2: Matthew 5 talked about that, too. Yeah,
4: yeah, be <laughs> careful about crazy. making oaths because you should
1: take them seriously. So... I think, I think it's... it's even worse than you described. Um, I think back to, like, the Pledge of Allegiance, which, I mean, it's troubling, right? We, most of us grew up saying it all the time. Um, not obvious we should have nor that we should make small children do it. Hmm. Um, never mind the fact that we've added a pledge to the Texas flag, too. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand maybe something's gone wrong in my argument because it seems strange that that should be the target of uh, you know me being against it but when i actually think about it i think it's kind of weird like i think back to the early christians who kept getting you know dragged in front of roman officials and if they'd only do this or that like just you know make some nominal commitment to the state and that way then the Romans would leave them alone and yet consistently they failed to do that because they thought it implemented them in idolatry and got, you know, we talking about being fed to the lions and all sorts of terrible things. And so maybe we don't take the pledge very seriously, which is, that's the sin, right? It's not the taking of, it's the fact that we've dismissed it over familiarity, that and a number of other mm-hmm. commitments.
2: Extra points to those of you who said the pledge to the Christian flag.
0: Somebody asked about that. You know who you are. Yes. Somebody wrote and said, what about the Christian flag? I was like, what is that? I didn't know that. Or a pledge to the Bible, they also asked about that. Oh,
2: yeah.
0: A lot of pledges.
2: Oh, yeah.
0: Okay. And moving us along, I think I can get like three more questions in. We'll see. Um, Given how long we American Christians have been using war language, especially in the culture war, I think this is interesting. Can we use the same structure of justifying war to justify the violence that this war mentality has led to, i.e., the rise of Christian nationalism? If not, why not? Meaning, can we take some of the concepts we've talked about with just war and can we apply them to culture war? I'll read it again. I didn't write the question, so.
2: (laughs) No preemptive strikes. Huh?
0: Sorry. Oh, yeah, okay. Given how long we American Christians have been using war language, especially in the culture war, can we use the same structure of justifying war to justify the violence that this war mentality has led to, i.e. the rise of Christian nationalism? If not, why not?
2: Clarifying question. Are you talking about actual violence or people being mean to each other on Twitter?
0: I think there's something about mean on Twitter, but people losing their jobs and things like that, too. It's not. But no, I don't think the person means real violence, but I don't know the person, who they, what they mean. Okay, there goes right, anonymity. Right, there you go. <laughs> okay.
3: Well, I mean, I I think that very simply, part of the issue um, in that is um, maybe a misunderstanding of uh, who our neighbor is and that they're not my enemy. You know, the person who in our, who across the street from me, my next door neighbor, my coworker, um, who's not a believer and doesn't believe, live their life in uh, a way that, you know, is laid out in scripture, that's not my enemy. And I think that that's part of what's what's been lost in um, the culture war side of um, what we've seen in the church. Over the course of my childhood, I know this, um, that's the person that I should be burdened for to share the gospel with, um, who needs to know that uh, there is a redemptive plan through the blood of Jesus Christ. So uh, I think that the whole religious right, Christian, you know, cultural holy war thing is a misplaced aggression and misunderstanding of the very nature of what we are doing.
2: And I think pacifism would say the reason this is so important is that it it is us not thinking that this matters at the national level that has brought it down to us not thinking it matters at the personal level, right? So my enemy is not the guy across from me. My enemy is also not the guy in Iran, right? Like, my enemy is also not. And even if it is, love your enemy, right? It doesn't get any clearer than that. And so I think the pacifists would say, like, the reason it is important that we hold to love your enemy, turn the other cheek, the the, the ethic that we see embodied in the Sermon on the Mount is that if we don't do it at the highest level, then we're going to find excuses not to do it at any any level, and we're going to make excuses all the way down until it's the guy across the street, and I'm excusing violence toward him when, because I've justified it all the way down to this, And, 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 and that's where, so the... The way pacifism was defined to me is someone who out of obedience to Christ and submission to the authority of the scripture would rather die than kill. Hmm. Would rather die than kill because Jesus did. Um, and, Hmm. And what you find when you would rather die than kill is that there are ways to solve the problem other than killing. You can put yourself in the bullet's path if you need to, right? You can jump in front of the car if you need to. Um, and unless we actually draw, step into that ethic, because we are fallen people, if we start allowing ourselves violence as the option up here, then the next thing we know it's going to come down and, down and down and down and down and down. And I think it does happen in the culture wars. And I think it does happen. And I think, I think we can justify anything. Um, and so all of a sudden, the Sermon on the Mount becomes just a nice idea that Jesus meant to apply to somebody somewhere.
0: I I saved this question for toward the end. It may end up being our last. We'll see how fast we go through it, but I like it. One hears sometimes that America is on the verge of a civil war. What are some ways for us to help bridge divides and help rehumanize the other side when it is tempting to otherize or dehumanize those who don't think exactly like you? Are there any relevant historical examples of this that you like? Want me to read it again? Okay. One hears sometimes that America is on the verge of a civil war. What are some ways for us to help bridge divides and help rehumanize the other side, when it is tempting to otherize or dehumanize those who don't think exactly like you? Are there any relevant historical examples of this that you like? Don't forget we're all going to sing together at the end too. sway we shall overcome so i think
1: you should go read winsome christianity and i'm trying to remember all the different authors of it there's two of them there's two biola pros but you can go look up winsome christianity and i like it because in part of the book it talks about um, providing narratives and counter narratives as part of our christian witness and through story Right, so very few people, I think, just purely sociological what I think, is that people aren't convinced by argument as much as we wish they would. And we argue and then like, well, one man's ponens is another man's tollens, as we'll say in philosophy. What you can always flip those arguments around and we get in these crazy debates, what you really ought to do is tell stories because stories are um, a way into empathy. Right, and by providing narrative and providing examples, and being patient and letting the spirit work in the world a little bit and not feeling like you have to win today, right? That you're not a competitor. You're a neighbor like you were talking about. And our goal is to share the stories with our neighbors and then listen too. Um, I think that's meaningful. I think it's a way to go about life.
2: So I don't actually have – I wish I had a better historical example. I don't. But this is – my entire life in ministry right now is um, is holding a conversation between people who disagree with each other. So like my church is luckily enough, like split 55, 45 on pretty much everything. Like name your issue. Um, and it makes it hard and it makes it beautiful at the same time. And so I've told people, like, if you want a church that's ideologically homogenous, you we are not it. You should go find another church. Um, but what's beautiful is is we're together because we love Jesus, um, and what I've learned, and so I've also got gastro church, which is does the same thing, like brings people together at tables who wildly disagree with each other and has them eat together. And what I've learned, the story is absolutely true. Uh, what I've learned is. We are not going to survive unless we actually start listening to each other, and so few people do, so few people do. People say they listen to each other, but they don't. Um, If you think you listen well to others, turn on the news that is opposite yours and listen to it for a month straight um, until you can actually, or maybe it's not news as your thing, maybe it's not politics, maybe it's religion, maybe it's something else, like whatever your dividing line is, and until you can state the case, well, sympathetically, better than the person who can state it themselves. you don 't actually know what their argument is, and what i what I have found over and over and over and over and over again that people come to the tables that come to the church, they talk to me about the crazy left or the crazy right or whatever it is and they cannot coherently state the argument of the other side. Yeah. Um, and so I what I tell people is go have dinner and listen, right? Go have dinner and listen and until you can listen, until you can understand where they're coming from, they're never going to listen to where you're coming from. Yeah. Um, and so I think I think it is probably the most important issue of our day and I think it is up to every single person who calls themselves a member of the body of Christ to be an active peacemaker in this way by listening to the people um, who disagree with you who are on the other side of you and trying to create community and, and consensus, consensus and peace without um, sacrificing truth. That's good stuff. Yeah,
3: I, I think that you know my, my time in ministry has almost exclusively been cross-cultural ministry and uh, anytime you get people together uh, who have different backgrounds, you see these tension points that exist different values, different worldviews, different uh, uh, little, even small idiosyncrasies about the way you go about things that, that can cause real tension. Um, but that being said, you know, what we always say at our church in trying to be a, a multicultural church um, is that, like, the, a multicultural church. Is not a church where everybody who is woke and progressive comes together and sings kumbaya. Um, it is actually the place where people who harbor deep prejudices in their life are allowed into community and loved over time into repentance and to see the image of Christ uh, in in their neighbor. And so, uh, you know, I yeah. Uh, a tangible example is literally every single time somebody has held a prejudice in their heart uh, and has uh, uh, chosen to spend time with said person, and God has transformed their heart um, and that kind of thing happens all the time it 's something that we need to continuously fight for, and it 's ultimately what what we're what we 're called to do, and what our culture needs right now is people. Who um, who see people as being made in the image of God and are um, devoted to the gospel and sharing that and loving that and being around people that even make you mad.
0: If you have like a quick thought, go. Otherwise, we're out.
3: So I would say the there's
4: a book in our classes uh, called Drama of Scripture. It's a real like thin, simple book. Just tells the story of Scripture. And I was really surprised when we assigned it how popular it was among people, and they shared it with the church and everybody, because it tells the whole story of Scripture, just macro level. Uh, and I realize, as Christians, we often so, so often know the individual stories, but we don't know the larger story of Scripture. And so I think, while we're doing all of this, you know, we're sharing stories, we're engaging, we're trying to understand the other arguments, the, the one thing that unites, that, that we can provide as the church to unite things, is that larger meta narrative, uh-huh. which says, your, your stories, uh, while valuable, fit within this larger story that everyone needs to know and share. And so I think that's something that the church can offer is that larger worldview.
0: I love it. Read your Bible, Adam Harger says. And I think Theology on Tap, we're trying to do a little bit of this here, right? Like We don't all agree about things. If you go listen to our podcast, sometimes we have ones where we we argue on the podcast Um, and you get to hear different perspectives but we respect each other and we love each other and we really care and sometimes we change each other's minds which is really fun. Um, A couple quick housekeeping things before we go and I'm going to ask Patrick to come up and pray for us. Um, If you heard anything tonight that you're interested in talking about more or you want to maybe check out one of their churches or whatever. Uh, Do you guys mind staying just a couple minutes after for people to come visit with you just a little bit? Um, And also we've got Evan McClanahan and Patrick and Paul Sloan's not here. Well, he was here earlier, but he's not here now. But those are the other three members of our leadership team. So if you ever want to talk to any of us about the topic of the night or just about Jesus, about theology, or about what programs we have at our own churches, Bible studies, that kind of stuff, we love that. So please come talk to us. If you want to help us clean up afterwards, we will say yes. So come talk to me. I'll tell you some stuff. Come take your picture. Next one is August fifteenth. Have I forgotten anything? Okay. Patrick, you're up. Oopsie. Sorry. I'm sorry. No, you're I'm gonna take a quick picture as
1: soon as it's done. Let us pray. Heavenly Father. You have made us bringers of peace in a dangerous and fallen world. We ask that you would inspire us with your wisdom, that we might faithfully communicate the image of the crucified Lord in all that we do and with everyone that we meet. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.